Thank you so much for joining us this morning at the Commonwealth Club of California. I know that uh, 10 o'clock in the morning on a, on a weekday is, um, uh, I won't say challenging, but you probably had to move some things around for our guest today. So thank you so much. It's the special taping of the Michelle Miao Show. The Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between <laughs> show. We do a special taping here at the Commonwealth Club with my co-host, John Zipper. The program is an intersectional approach to having conversations surrounding social justice and issues. And of course, we include LGBTQ thought leaders here at the program. The program. <laughs> Thank you. The program is made possible by our generous presenting sponsors, Pacific Fertility Center and Kaiser Permanente. Today's coffee was gener generously donated by Equator Coffees and Tea, and the pastries and light bites were gener generously donated by Seth Banco, the Castro Car Guy. All right. <laughs> well, let's get our program started. Uh, our guest today is a legend, an icon. Many of us have read about her work in, in school, right? And uh, she's the founder of the United Farmers uh, Workers Association. And she also has just premiered her film, Dolores, last fall. Let's welcome Dolores Huerta to the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And if I could further identify myself, I left the Farm Workers Union 15 years ago, and uh, uh, then I founded the Dolores Huerta Foundation, uh, where we do grassroots uh, organizing in uh, marginalized communities to show people that they have power, and also to raise their consciousness, okay? Because unfortunately, many of the people uh, in the areas where we work, uh, they have uh, been very much influenced by the Catholic Church, evangelicals, and uh, so part of our work is not only just to organize them uh, so they, they can get a sense of their own power, but also to educate them uh, on issues that they need to be educated and to get them to kind of throw off those uh, chains, traditional chains that kind of bind their minds in very conservative uh, traditions. Uh, kind of to liberate their minds, let's put it that way, okay? So, and <laughs> Thank especially you. On, the, uh, on issues such as women's uh, uh, right to abortion, women's right to choice, uh, everyone's right uh, to marry whomever they want, or exactly. love whomever they want, or live Thank with you. whomever they want, right? And uh, so that's part of the work that we do. It's not just about organizing people, but it's also being able to uh, bring them enlightenment, mm -hmm. you know, on issues that they may not Yeah. You know. And uh, we have, we're, we're going to get through it. We're going to talk a whole lot about the film and your work. Mm -hmm. uh, I did want to update everyone who's trickling in. Alicia Garza couldn't make it this morning. She's not feeling well. So there is something going around in the Bay Area. But yes. we are rescheduling to a date in February, which is perfect. Uh, so we'll let everybody know. Um, all right, so Dolores, I saw the film many, many, many times, mm -hmm. and there were, I'm, I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful for the film because there were pieces of it which is uh, uh, kind of aligned with what a lot of women are saying right now with the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement. Why did it take so long for women to tell their stories? Why is it taking so long for women to tell their stories? And in this film, we get a... Uh, a personal account of your life and not just the activism. Mm -hmm. 
And it, it's kind of an interesting question, but for you, did it feel so long to finally have a documentary that shared parts of your personal life as well as your work? Uh, yeah, I had been approached uh, by many other people to do a, a film about my life, uh, and I just didn't feel like I was ready for that. Uh, but when Carlos Santana called, who's going to say no to Carlos Santana? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, so I had to agree. And uh, most, uh, I really didn't have a lot to do with the film, unfortunately. I was too busy campaigning with Hillary for president. And uh, so it was pretty much Peter Bratt uh, with Benjamin Bratt, his brother, uh, that really put the film together. And, but the amazing thing about the film is that there were so, uh, for those of you that have seen it, and if you haven't, I hope you do, and by the way, we have to see it more than once, okay? <laughs> it's just because it's got such, so much content. Uh, but the archival footage uh, that they found for the film, and I think that's what made the film. And uh, it was a woman, of course, uh, who did the archival footage. And uh, there was footage in, in that film that I had never seen. Or I guess I was, you know, interviewed, but I can't remember, you know, when the interviews took place because there was so much going on. Uh, so that's really what made the film, the archival footage. Uh, you've, as, as you certainly get this from the film and, and from people who have grown up learning about you in school and everything, you've been doing this for a long time. So when you're talking about, uh, you know, organizing and trying to get people to, you know, to be enlightened and, and such, is it different today than it was in the 1960s or the 1970s? And, and if so, how? Uh, I think the one thing that's different today, well, which is an advantage, is that, of course, we do have the devices, you have computers, you know, you can mobilize people very quickly, like we saw with the marches, uh, the Me Too movement, and information can be uh, disseminated very, very rapidly. Of course, we didn't have any of that when we were organizing. But when it comes down to the basic kind of organizing, especially when you're trying to transform people, uh, enlighten them, then it's really got to go back to people to people. And the way that Cesar Chavez and I organized the farm workers movement uh, was by what we call house meetings. And this is really a simple, simple uh, procedure, but it's very time consuming. And so a lot of people that know how to do this work, they don't do it because it just takes a lot of time. And basically the way that we organize, and everybody can do this by the way, is that we go to someone and say, could I have a meeting in your home? Would you invite some of your friends over? Then we can talk about the issues. And then when we talk about the issues, we give example of how some of these issues were resolved. For instance, in one little community that we, uh, we were organizing, uh, Lamont, California, and by the way, Weed Patch, I'm gonna say the word Weed Patch, because if you remember the Grapes of Wrath, that's where the Grapes of Wrath took place, Weed Patch, okay? And so in that little town of Weed Patch, uh, they needed uh, to have a fence around the school because one of the children had wandered off. And uh, so uh, in our house meeting, we found this couple that wanted to do something about this. So we organized them, they volunteered, then they went and they got passed a bond issue. And what they did is to, to pass that bond issue, they had to register people to vote, they had to get the vote out, and they got a brand new fence with a brand new gymnasium in their neighborhood. You know, uh, So you show them these are the people that are, looked like you, uh, but this is what they were able to accomplish. In another little town, uh, they needed sidewalks and uh, gutters because it rains, it gets muddy. Mm -hmm. And so they were able, this, this, this other group of people went out there and they were able to go to the Board of Supervisors, uh, pressure them, and now they have 18 streets 
that didn't have sidewalks good as the sidewalks that now have them and street lights. So it's the idea that people can, and so the main thing that we do in those little meetings that we have in someone's house is we really convince them that they have the power to make the changes in their community. And once they, even if they never went to high school, even if they don't speak English, even if they're not U.S. citizens, that they have the power to do the work. And it, it really, and not only that, but then we get them to run for office. Hmm. Yeah. I was just so going to say. Some, we have some of these people that are now on school boards and water boards, and you know, and so that's it's about empowering people. Yeah, I mean, we we talk a lot in this program about people actually taking part in the democracy and kind of learning how it works and such. Yeah. You're doing that on on and such a great real level mm -hmm. and then getting them filtering in through different positions and such. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's amazing. But here's the thing. I mean, when you're incredibly active in terms of uh, the labor rights movement and the farm workers' rights, there weren't a lot there. Well, the Women's March wasn't happening, let's put it that way. And where we're seeing uh, plenty of, uh, of women and not you know, lots of women of color who are now opening doors for, for other women of color to run for office. I kind of, I want to go back and I want to ask, I mean, I, I really want to touch on that. that. That was so special in terms of how hard you were fighting. And uh, parts of the film gave me the impression that you did overcome some major challenges in terms of gender inequality or not getting, you know, the credits that you deserve. So, for example, many people saw Cesar Chavez as mm -hmm. the, the man behind the labor rights movement or fighting for the farm workers, um, when in fact, when we're talking about being able to change legislation that protected farm workers, a lot of those ideas were inspired by you. Mm -hmm. uh, the ability to negotiate contracts that was inspired and led by you. So, you know, I, I would love for you to talk about just what your, your feelings were, your experiences, and be very upfront about the challenges that you may have faced before we have what we have today. Well, I think uh, uh, I, like a lot of women, you know, uh, we just want to help, don't we? Yeah. Uh, forget about the credit, okay? I just, I just want to help. And I have to tell you a story that when, uh, we had our first convention, and Sessa was at the podium running the convention, and uh, he steps off the podium. He says, uh, this is our first organizing convention. He says, did you get somebody to nominate you? I said, for what? For vice president. I said, oh, Caesar, I don't have to have an office. I just want to serve. <laughs> he said, you are crazy. Get somebody to nominate you right now. Okay, so I did. I got somebody to nominate me. And, and I, think that's, I think that's what all of us as women, we are so acculturated, I guess I use that word. I don't know if it's a real word or not. But we, you know, we have been uh, so taught that you know, we don't have to have positions of power. We as women are there to serve and to accommodate, right, and to help others. And, and we kind of have to get that out of our minds. And when we started, the, we first were planning the union, Cesar and myself. Uh, we actually planned the union in Los Angeles. And, uh, and then Cesar said, well, you know, one of us has to be the spokesperson. He said, do you mind if it's me? And I said, of course, Caesar, it should be you. OK, going back, if I could roll it back and say, OK, Caesar, we'll go 50-50 on that one. <laughs> but, but these are things that I have really learned, because uh, like most women, we just want to be in the background, right? And I think it's really hard for us to overcome that. 
And I think uh, uh, when I read Gloria Steinem's book, Revolution Within, and where she says, you know, we really have to stand up and take credit for what we do. And I think the reason that we have to do that, maybe it's not so much about feeding our own ego, but, but it's about the other women that are, you know, behind us or the other women that want to aspire. And so, uh, so I think we have to do that, not so much as I say for ourselves, but to think of all of the other women that need to know of the work that women are doing and of the victories and uh, challenges that, 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 that they have overcome, et cetera. <laughs> a woman who played a, an important role in, in your life, of course, was, of course, excuse me, was your mother. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a bit about the role she played in you and, and in the work you're now doing? Well, my mother was a feminist uh, way back uh, in, in the 30s uh, because uh, she was always the dominant figure mm-hmm. in our family. She was a businesswoman. She would, had been divorced. In fact, she was divorced twice. We kind of say in our family, it's kind of a tradition now. We all get divorced twice, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, you know, and, and she, she was always very active in the community, but she was a very a quiet, soft-spoken person, didn't smoke, didn't drink, uh, but was very, very strong, very strong feminist. And I think that I was so happy that my mother divorced my dad. I don't think I would be the person that I am, because my dad was a super macho, you know? He was married like six times, I think, you know? And... Uh, so I was really glad that I had my mom. My mother's name was Alicia St. John Chavez. That was my mother's name. <laughs> I brought up the Women's March, and, uh, you know, it's a movement. And, and it, one of the largest, or I would say it is being called, right, the, the largest uh, protests of, of President American history. Um, there's so much to learn from movements. Movements aren't necessarily perfect is uh, what I'm getting from readings. The civil rights movement wasn't perfect. Women's rights movement wasn't perfect. What, whatever we're doing now, we're all learning together. But many women had talked about not seeing themselves a part of this movement. And this is a reoccurring conversation that I pick up in history books of women of color not seeing themselves in this process. So I wanted to hear from you in, you know, being a, a woman of color, a Latina, um, who has successfully organized and been a part of a major movement in American history, talk about how we can create the spaces for women of color in today's movement that is so important. Well, I think, as you said, the history books, if you look at the history books, it never says uh, what women do in movements. And that's because we're left out of the history books, basically. But if you look back in the civil rights movement, there were women right in the front of the, uh, not only Coretta Scott King, but there were so many women that were involved. And when you see uh, the pictures of the students in the civil rights movement, they were getting beaten up or they were, had the fire hoses you know, trained on them. There were a lot of young women in that movement. you know. Uh, but again, uh, with the labor movement, the same thing. Women, if you look at the garment workers' strike in New York City, uh, there was all the women that were at the, at the front of that strike. Uh, if you look at uh, the hotel workers' movement, even here in San Francisco, there were the women right in the front of that strike. But what happens is that when the dust settles, I like to say, oh, and even the farm worker movement, again, in the movie, if you look at that movie, if you haven't seen it, you're going to see there were a lot of women out there that were right in the front, getting beaten up by the police, et cetera. But in the history books, they kind of leave out the contribution of women. So women of color have always been there. They've always been in the forefront, uh, and women have been in the forefront, but somehow, again, 
when they write the history, they forget to mention the women. So, and I, and I think that's just something that the Me Too movement is definitely going to change that. Because women are now demanding um, that, that they recognize, you know, the women, women's accomplishments and women's participation and, and women's, you know, role in history. I mean, when we think about the most recent uh, outburst, you might say, about uh, uh, the, when uh, the male was given a million dollars to do the reshoots, you know, for one of these movies, and, and the woman, uh, the actress, was given $1,000. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, that came to the forefront. And I guess that's the other good thing about media, because, you know, before, this would never have come out, right? But now with social media, everything is out, you know, everything can come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that, that uh, the, the visibility of women's actions is changing even before? I mean, what I'm getting around to is, you know, this uh, in no- this past November and this year, we are seeing record numbers of women running for office. I mean, at all levels across the country, and it it certainly seems like there's a, a generation or a part of this movement is not being willing to settle anymore for being behind the scenes. No, I want to be the senator. I want to be the supervisor. That. Thank you, and I think that the women now uh, have that energy mm-hmm. uh, to be able to put themselves forward. And uh, oftentimes, again, we as women hold ourselves back mm-hmm. because we think, well, I'm not really prepared, I'm not really qualified. But what I say to women, just do it like the guys do. Pretend you don't, okay? <laughs> Learn on the job, okay? That's what they do. So, and I think, <laughs> I think a lot of women are now understanding that message. You know, you can always get help. You can always do the research. But the main thing is to get in those. We have to get into those positions of power. And, and I'm just, while well, I'm thinking about that, uh, you know, we've been, just been celebrating uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And in uh, the celebrations that I have been at, guess who they forget to mention? Coretta Scott King. Mm-hmm. And if it were not for Coretta Scott King, we would not have a Martin Luther King uh, a day to celebrate because she is the one that was out there pounding the pavements all over the country. She with Harry Belafonte, Stevie Wonder, and uh, many of the other African-American artists, they were out there that were doing the work to make sure that we got the holiday. So I just want to say to everybody, if we're at the MLK celebration, you know, we have to go up and tap somebody on the shoulder. Please, would you please remember to quote Coretta Scott King. And the other thing that I have been saying to people is Coretta Scott King had a wonderful saying. And she said, if, unless women take power, we will never have peace in the world. Unless women take power. Although I have amended that statement to say feminists, okay? Uh, unless feminists take power, we will never have peace in the world. And I, I say feminists because we know we have a lot of uh, male allies, right? that are feminists, and we want to include them in the mix when we say that. <laughs> Touching on that, you know, something just happened in, in San Francisco in which uh, a woman, as acting mayor, ha- uh, was, was not chosen to continue being acting mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead, the Board of Supervisors here in San Francisco decided to uh, make a, a male um, acting mayor until we actually have a mayor. And so I kind of want to touch on that in that getting feminists to positions of power is sometimes very, very difficult. And I don't mean to sound so cynical, but... Well, I think, again, we have to go on to values, all right? And when I talk about feminism, I think we're talking about values. And I know that in San Francisco, uh, one of the big issues and friends of mine that I know, they used to live in San Francisco, have been pushed out of San Francisco. 
uh, because of the gentrification here. I know many teachers are having a hard time finding housing here. And uh, so I think you have to look at people's values. And I don't know whether uh, that person, whether uh, she had the values because she's a pe person of color. But you also have to think about who you're representing. Are you representing working people? I mean, there are many Latinos that I have not endorsed over the past. Uh, that, you know, you don't endorse somebody just because they're Latino, but you have to endorse to see what values they stand for. Like I'm endorsing Diane Feinstein over Kevin DeLeon. Because, uh, you know, I have some problems with some, some, some of Mr. DeLeon's values, right? And so I think that's what we have to look at. Yes, we need to get feminists. But I think a feminist is also somebody that cares about working people. We have to throw that into the mix. It's about labor unions. It's about caring about working people. It's about car caring about the environment, you know? Uh, so I think we have to add those values all, all together. And I know it's kind of a litmus test, but especially when it comes to working people, because working people are the majority of the population. And we know there's an attack on labor unions, and working people need a place to live. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I hope, uh, and I'm frankly endorsing Mark Leno for the mayor of San Francisco, uh, because I know Mark, uh, not only is he good on the values of our LGBT community, of the Latino community, but he has when he was in, in the Senate, he actually tried to pass legislation that would protect uh, some of the people uh, in San Francisco from losing their homes, you know? So thank, I, thank you for saying that. And, and, and for many of us in the progressive community, young people oftentimes will ask me, like, you know, what do I say to my friends if uh, they say I'm not radical or liberal or progressive enough? And, and to me, it's let's focus on the issues. Like, we've got a lot of issues. So, so to expand on that, there are a lot of young feminists who are scared right now, even though we're feeling empowered, we've got this movement going on, but we're feeling afraid of this administration. They've done a whole lot, especially since the last time we spoke last year, um, we touched briefly on immigration, and that has evolved into something incredibly scary. And, and so the second half of my my question um, as far as how difficult it is for feminists to get into positions of power is how we can continue that enlightenment. Um, how do you feel about today's political uh, environment and does any of it scare you or do we actually have a chance here at something greater than Donald Trump? Well, I think that as an organizer, I see this as, as an organizing opportunity, okay? <laughs> and. Uh, uh, what I think is going to happen, like, well, you know, I was uh, around during the 60s and the 70s, and I want to say to everybody, if you miss the 60s, that's okay. We're back. <laughs> we're, we're back right now. <laughs> and uh, I do believe that when we come out of this mess that we're in right now, out of this pickle with number 45, uh, that we're going to come out stronger. And the reason I'm saying this is because we know, and every woman in the room, every person of color in the room, we have lived this racism, the misogyny, the sexism, all of our lives, okay? This is nothing new to us, right? Uh, because it's, you know, we get these microaggressions every day of our lives. Uh, but the one thing is that it's been there forever, you know? It's been there forever, but now we see that it's so public and people are coming out there and they're identifying themselves as racist, right? Or as sexist or as homophobes, okay? So now we can see visibly who they are. And then that means that we have to put the pressure with all of this movement that we have going on right now on all of our public institutions, you know, and our private institutions, our corporations say, you've got to do something to end this. 
because these are cancers in our society and they are destroying our country. And when we think about how powerful we are in the United States of America, you know, we influence the entire world. And as we saw with our number 45 stupid statements about Nigeria, remember, and Africa, hey, Nigeria has a higher graduation rate than the United States does. Mm. You know, how about that? And, and they kind of forget, you know, when they talk about these the countries like El Salvador and Mexico, all of that gold that went to Europe so that they could build their institutions with our gold and the diamonds that they take out of Africa, right? And all of the minerals that they're still taking out of Africa and this economic colonization that the European countries did. So we have to, but the thing is this, uh, and when I say about how we have to change this, uh, you know, we've got to start changing our educational institutions. I think this is the one place we can start because we've got the structure in place already of our educational institutions, but we have to change the content because they never teach what the contributions are of people of color to this country. They never have taught that Indians were our first slaves, Native Americans and that African slaves built the White House and the Congress, right? And all of the infrastructure in Washington, D.C., the buildings that are there, and the Mexicans and the Filipinos and the Chinese and the Japanese and people from India that were brought here to build the infrastructure of the country, that immigrants built the infrastructure, okay? So we've got to start teaching that and the contributions of women and our LGBT community and the labor unions uh, to our country. And I think we've got to start insisting and we've got to get people on those school boards city council, supervisors boards that are going to help us do that. And it's gotta be done really quick, okay? So now we've got the momentum, so now it's time that we do, you know, we insist our stories have to be told. Because if not, our children of color will always feel oppressed and discriminated. And our white children, they will be fed that poison of white supremacy. You know, so I think that now is the time to act. You know, now is the time to act. As they say, now's the time, right? Time, time is up. Time's up. Oh, time yeah. is up. We're talking about education, which is super important. Is there any worry that the ability to instill those changes in, in the system and in children is being eroded by the decades-long attack on public education, the increasing moving to charter schools and to religious schools and such like that? Not all of them necessarily ultra-conservative, you know, but that's an element of this. No, it's, it's very, very scary. And we're going to have, again, uh, we have <clears throat> our great opportunity is 2018 mm -hmm. in these elections, okay? We know we've got to elect somebody to the State Board of Education that is somebody who is really committed to public schools, you know? Uh, there is a, one good candidate running, Tony Thurman, okay? He's running for to be the State Board of Education chair. And we know the charter schools are going to put in jillions of dollars uh, to try to take over our State Board of Education. And by the way, they've already done this in Los Angeles. They took over the school board in Los Angeles. And uh, so this is very scary. We really, really got to fight. Uh, we would, if it were not, by the way, if it were not for labor unions, we wouldn't have public education in the first place. So that's really got to be on our list. I think education has got to be on our list and we've got to preserve public education. We've got to minimize the influence of charter schools. I know some of them are for-profit, some of them are non-profit, you know, so I'm not going to condemn all of the charter schools, but I think that we really have to fight really hard to make sure uh, we preserve public education. And then we have to fight for our teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Our teachers should be paid more money. I mean, why should, you know, you get more money as a prison guard in our correctional system 
with a high school education than you can as a teacher where you have to get your bachelor's or your master's degree to be able to teach, you know? So our system is all upside down. Mm -hmm. And eventually, we have to keep fighting for free tuition for everyone in this United States of America. Yep, yep. A couple more questions for you and then we'll open up uh, questions from our audience, which I'm sure there are a lot of questions. <laughs> um, California, I mean, a lot. you did a lot of work in California. Uh, where we're at today seems like we're, uh, you know, the the perfect state compared to any other state, or that's uh, somehow uh, somehow you know some some politicians might put it that way, and kind of being proud of how progressive we are as a state. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on you know the beginning of 2018. We passed some some great laws such as uh, standing strong against the federal government in being a sanctuary state, mm -hmm. pretty much, um, uh, uh, cannabis, and many other policies. But what are your feelings about California, our progressiveness, or is there something else that we need to be focused and working on? Yeah, it's called the Central Valley. Okay, because without, they were like Alabama. <laughs> and I'm serious, you know, uh, our, uh, just how bad it is, our local sheriff had Joe Arpaio come as a guest uh, to Kern County. Uh, you know who Joe Arpaio is, everybody knows, okay? Mm -hmm. And then uh, they, uh, uh, our, our local Kern High School District voted to bring schools into the, guns into the schools. Okay. Uh, luckily, the state passed a law that said they can't have guns in the schools. Uh, where the um, AB 1266 passed, which was the law that allowed transgender st uh, students to be able to use uh, bathrooms of their choice, um, our local uh, Kern High School District, the the chair of the high school district said, I don't care what the governor says, I don't care what the legislature says, we're not going to enforce that law. Mm -hmm. Okay, luckily he's not there anymore, one down, okay. Uh, he knew we were gonna take him out in the election, so he just <laughs> decided not to run. Uh, uh, they just voted, although the whole state now has said uh, cannabis is uh, legal. Guess what, Kern County says no. Mm -hmm. Kern County says no. And uh, they're doing raids in all of these uh, places where uh, they grow medicinal marijuana, et cetera. So we are in the Central Valley of California. And my foundation, we are there because we're going to change it. We are going to change it, you know. And so we are working very, very hard uh, to stop the school to prison pipeline. Uh, we sued our Kern High School District for the large suspension and expulsion of uh, African-American children and Latinos. And we settled the lawsuit. Uh, with the California Rural Legal Assistance, uh, the great Cynthia Rice, an attorney who uh, bought that lawsuit. And uh, now they have to change their practices and procedures. Uh, they have to do positive behavior intervention systems, restorative justice systems. Um, they have to have a cultural competency. They've got to stop recruiting teachers from Iowa and maybe LA. They <laughs> do them from Los Angeles instead of Iowa and South Dakota. And uh, uh, they've got to have one month of African American History Month and then a month of uh, uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, you know. And so, and then they have to have public forums uh, so that we can then uh, complain. And by the way, the, we, the way we, we were able to file this lawsuit is by organizing the parents. And so our, our first parent conference, we had 155 parents, and then we got the information. Now we are in seven different school districts, uh, organizing parents to take on their local school district. And we are starting a new chapter of our organization called United Neighbors, or Vecinos Unidos, in California City. This is in the Mojave Desert. And there, you can hold on to your seats when I tell you this, you're not gonna believe it, it's gonna wanna make you cry. The suspension and expulsion of African-American students is 81%. Eight out of 10 
African-American students are being expelled or suspended. And of course, we know this is a, a crime and a civil rights violation. But as usual, we are organizing the parents first. We're not going to go to the school district. We're going to go to the parents because they have to take the power. They have to take control and they have to make the changes. I have to ask, in, in, in that mix, are you also involved in bail reform, which is a very important exactly. issue that below a lot of people's radar? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, and there's so many layers of oppression for poor people and for people of color, uh, you know, when we think about it. And that's what uh, Reverend Jim Lawson says, you know. Uh, he, you know, Reverend Lawson worked with Dr. Martin Luther King in the South, and he says we have to dismantle the systems of oppression. And that's what we have to do. So it's, you know, you know, layer by layer, we have to dismantle them. And of course, the way we do that is who we elect to office, right? The people that we elect to office, because they are the ones that make the decisions. And they're the ones that make the policies and the laws. And they're the ones that decide how our tax dollars are going to be spent. And so, and I think that's so important that we just hammer that home, especially to young people. It's wonderful to march. It's wonderful to protest. It's great to be on Facebook, you know, and Instagram and all that. But if you don't go to the ballot box, nothing changes. Nothing, nothing changes. And one of the things I hope that everybody who's listening to this, I hope that they all uh, will call Diane Feinstein's office, you know, and Kamala Harris and say, thank you so much for standing up for the dreamers. I don't yes. think the Democrats made a mistake. Thank them. Thank them. Because, you know, they're getting a lot of flack about uh, shutting down the government. But, you know, they use that one opportunity to be able to do this. And let's hope that they'll be victorious. Last question for you, and then we're going to open up to, to questions. Um, you've risked your life, you know, for this fight. And, and I believe that it was in San Francisco yeah. in which you suffered broken bones, broken rib um, from being out there um, in a rally, in a protest, do you still believe in the power of protests and rallying and getting together? And then violence. And I think that was a question people would say after I got beat up by the police. Do I still believe in nonviolence? Definitely. I think nonviolence is a very uh, strong, it's a powerful, powerful, you might say, way to be able to accomplish things. And I do have to thank the city of San Francisco uh, because after that beating, guess what? I'm able to be here today. Uh, because part of my lawsuit was that I get $2,000 a month. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, this is, that plus my $600 a month Social Security, then I'm able to continue working. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah. <laughs> because all of the money that I raise for uh, speaking engagements goes to my foundation, the Dolores Huerta Foundation. And by the way, we're on the web at DoloresHuerta.org. DoloresHuerta.org. <laughs> And you can join DHF.org. Did I say that? Juanita, my daughter Juanita's here with me. It's joindhf.org if you want to become part of our, our, our social justice movement. So, so thank you, San Francisco. <laughs> well, and we should also know, use that to push San Francisco also to reform the way police handle demonstrations. Exactly. And so it, wasn't, it was actually making sure that other people didn't have to go through what you had to go through. Well, I really have to thank the people that supported me, especially Eva Royale, who was a, a big, uh, uh, she is the one that does the Cesar Chavez March and the Cesar Chavez Breakfast every year. And she was out there really campaigning. Uh, Howard Wallace, who is no longer with us, uh, who was a labor gay activist. Uh, uh, they did all of the uh, organizing uh, to make sure that we were able to get some justice. Great. Okay. All right, now it's time for some questions. 
I heard just last night from a member of the Commonwealth Club that there is a gentleman in the Central Valley that is buying up all the land, and this family's been doing this from the 1800s, and they're doing it very secretly, and quite a bit of the Central Valley is owned by one family. Are you aware of this, and what can we do to stop that? Well, I think it's always been that way. People don't realize when they think of uh, the Central Valley is so important because this is where all our food comes from, right? Uh, but it's always been, uh, oh, they, I mean, these these farms are not family farms. I mean, these are uh, tens of thousands of acres. I mean, to give you an example, a Dole, Dole the pineapple company, uh, the last, I remember, remember when I was the United Farm Workers, they had like 20,000 workers. So a small farm in, in the Central Valley is 1,000 workers. So these are huge haciendas. In fact, I remember Ralph Nader uh, did a study and this was about 20 years ago, and there's been more consolidation since then, that I think it was something like, and my numbers may be off, but it was like 90% of the land, uh, in, of the farmland, was owned by like 4% of the corporations, okay? So this, this has always been like that. So uh, there, there's a few small farmers, and uh, they use, a, uh, when the Farm Bureau Federation goes out there, they, they talk like they represent small farmers, but they don't. They represent these huge, what they call agribusiness. So, so that's what California, California is agribusiness. And uh, by the way, many, much of the land, especially in Delano, like the uh, people that own the grape fields, guess where they got their land? Mm -hmm. When they deported, the, when they put the Japanese in the con into, into the internment camps, okay? I call them concentration camps, okay? Mm -hmm. when, when they put the Japanese into the internment, they just took their land. And I think that was part of, probably one of the reasons that, the, uh, that they did that to the Japanese, because the whole push uh, to take the Japanese off of their lands was uh, pushed by the Associated Farmers, which is a very right-wing agricultural organization, okay? John Steinberg, by the way, writes about this, so this is not just me saying it. Mm -hmm. Great. We have another question back here. Um, hi, Dolores. Uh, my name is Veronica Fimbres, and I'm running for governor of California uh, through the Green Party. Um, you were saying that you recognize um, uh, the platform that the people have that are running. So would you look at someone other than the two that you mentioned to replace Dianne Feinstein or, or someone else to replace Dianne Feinstein? And what are your chances that I could get you to possibly endorse me? Would you look at my platform? And uh, can I get that kind of support from you? Well, I, I think that Diane Feinstein, uh, when we think of her position, and I think people have to be really politically smart. I mean, Diane Feinstein is the senior member of the Judiciary Committee. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with number 45, right? But we need her there. We need her there because to get seniority in, in, the, in the Senate takes a long, long time. And she has the experience, you know, she has the intelligence, the commitment, and she has been standing up for us. So at this point, I would not endorse anybody against Diane Feinstein. When it comes to the governor's race, I, I think we have wonderful candidates. I'm actually not going to endorse any of them at this point because uh, they're all my friends. And uh, we wish them good luck. We'll see who, who comes out ahead. Uh, but I do want to say to the Green Party, I always make it a point to always vote 
at least for one person running for the Green Party. Uh, uh, every time when I go to an election, because uh, I, I know it took a long time to get the Green Party on the ballot. And here in, in the United States, it's almost impossible uh, to create a third party. So we want to keep the Green Party on the ballot. We want to keep the values of the Green Party alive uh, because the Green Party does influence the other candidates that are running uh, because you're always out there in the forefront. You're always ahead of the game, right? And you've got the values, I think, that all of us and want, want to see in government. And eventually, we do see that they do adopt your policy. So thank you very much. Leave at the green. <laughs> Next question. Good morning. Um, I got to see the film last year, and it was just such an excellent opportunity and which such great, great deep respect I have for you and all of your work. Um, I work in the worker co-op movement, and um, I am just so overwhelmed by your optimism and your pragmatism and how you just move forward. And that's my th big thing about moving forward. And I'm just so curious about like having coming from your history and seeing what you know those of us that didn't live through it lived through so much in the '60s before that, and how you came to this now, what you thought was going to happen now, and what has happened, and how you <laughs> perceive that, and how I try to retain. You know, I got my silly button, radical hope. Try to have hope. Try to rally the people that I work with. We need to move forward. You know. Times have been worse, and I want to hear that echo back to me. Times have been worse. This is bad. Things will get better. But how, looking at you and all the work that you've done and how you motivate people, how, how do you see us getting out of this? How do you maintain that? And what, like, I'm just so curious, 10 years from now, what's your vision? What do you see? What's going to happen? Like, we're going to keep on pushing forward. But Well, it's hard to see what's going to happen 10 years from now, but I think right now in the immediate space that we're in right now, uh, we can just take what's, what's happened. Um, I was, you know, Alabama, you know what I mean? When they elected uh, uh, Doug Jones, who had been a prosecutor of some of the people who had actually killed, you know, uh, I think it was the young women, was it the young women that were killed in Birmingham, in, in Birmingham right? And he was a prosecutor of people who had, uh, you know, violated the rights of the African-Americans in Alabama. I was just in the state of Virginia, by the way, and uh, everybody, you guys, eat your liver. I got a picture with the first transgender person yeah. elected to the Assembly of Virginia. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we saw that there's 16, uh, uh, there were uh, 17 delegates, you know, Democrats, uh, that were elected to the uh, state assembly over there. And the 17th person lost by one vote. Mm -hmm. And not only did that person lose their delegate seat, by that one vote, but actually the control of the legislature was lost by one vote. You know, so I think that this is what we have to really focus on is to see how important voting is, and because we know that we do have that power. And I'm saying in 2018 we can build our own wall in the U.S. Congress. It's going to be a wall of progressive legislators that we can elect. And for those of you in the Bay Area. I know you have great representation here, but come on down to the Central Valley, okay? Come on down to Alabama and California, <laughs> and uh, you can help us. And my own son, by the way, is running for Congress. His name is Emilio Huerta. He grew up in the movement. Uh, uh, he was arrested when he was 15 because he was campaigning for Tom Hayden uh, for the Senate at that point in time. He's a public, public interest attorney. He does nonprofit law. And uh, this is a, an employment law, and this is the kind of work that he does. He worked with the uh, Cesar Chavez Foundation for uh, 14 years of his uh, of his uh, legal life, you know. 
And so anyway, we'd love to have you come down and you can help us knock on doors and uh, do phone banking and, and we can get that, flip that one seat that is now represented by a dairy uh, farmer who was received millions and millions of dollars from the federal government. And he considers himself a businessman. So anyway, uh, come on down to uh, Central Valley. Uh, you can come down to Fresno. His district uh, starts in, in uh, Weed Patch down in uh, uh, south of Bakersfield all the way to uh, the, the uh, Fresno. It, not the city of Fresno, but just, all, just south of Fresno. Hmm? We have a question here, and then a couple will move over there. Hi, Dolores. My name is Haley Soto. Um, I'm currently a master's student at San Francisco State. Um, Right now, I actually work with a lot of young people, young people of color, young people who identify on many spectrums. And a lot of the questions that I get from my youth is, I'm not 18, so I can't vote. What do we do? What is the first step? How do we get involved? And what would you tell our young people, especially today? Um, I will say there so much goes on in the education system, but they're so resilient. And with that resilience, how do we turn that forward? How do we get that and push it forward? What would you tell them or what can I say to them that Dolores Huertas told me to tell you this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you a little story. One, one of the times when I was arrested, I was met by a group of students uh, when I got out of jail. This was down in uh, Visalia, California. And uh, there was a group of students meeting me and then one of them handed me a note. And it was for my 13-year-old daughter, Angela. And the note said, Mom, I'm sorry I can't be there uh, to greet you because I'm out knocking on doors to get out the boat. <laughs> okay, so 16-year-olds, I mean, she was only 13 at the time. Okay, so I'm just going to say to the 16-year-olds, yeah, you can come out there. You can also knock on doors. You have a lot of energy. Uh, you can also do phone banking. You can help pass out the flyers. You can uh, talk to the people in your school to make sure that they register to vote. You know, so I think, and that they vote, not only register, because I think a lot of times we register people to vote, but then we don't check back to make sure that they voted or that they're ready to vote. And now in this next election, uh, they have made it so easy. You know, we can register on our cell phone, right? We can register on our computers. Uh, not only that, but we can pick up the ballots. You know, people get that, they get their absentee ballot and then they forget to mail it in. Well, now we can go over there and remind them and say, can I take your ballot and, and pop it into the mailbox for you? So it's going to be really, really easy. And especially our young people, because 75% of young people don't vote. And they've got to realize that this is their future. You know, this is their country. Are we going to be able to save our planet? It's, it's for them that, that all this fight is about. So, yeah, tell them to come on out, uh, you know, volunteer for a campaign. Uh, there's going to be a lot of good things on the ballot. In fact, one of the measures that is going to be on the ballot is it's going to be a measure to make sure that the corporations pay their fair share of property taxes. So you've got corporations like Chevron, uh, Disney. Disney is paying taxes like they were back in the 50s and the 60s. You know, homeowners' taxes have gone up slow, slowly, but slowly they've gone up. But the corporations, their taxes are still the same. And if we can pass that measure, it's called Make It Fair. Uh, we are going to be able to bring in $11 billion into the state. $11 billion a year into the state. And that money will go for education, it'll go for health services, et cetera. So uh, that's, we're gonna need help, by the way, to get signatures also, to put that on the ballot. So we're part of a, 
uh, we're part of a statewide group uh, called California Calls from San Diego all the way to San Francisco and Oakland. It's uh, Oakland Rising, San Francisco Rising, and we're all going to work together to make sure that we pass that. We, you know, we all work together to, to pass Proposition 55, if you will remember. That was the one that taxed the millionaires. Remember that? <laughs> in the last ballot. And so millionaires in California have to pay 3% more in state taxes. If you pay, make half a million, you pay 2% more. If you make uh, uh, $250,000, 1% more. And as a result of that measure, uh, we have been bringing in $9 billion a year. Okay? Wow. So we did it. Yeah. You know, Great. we did it. We have a question back here? Yeah. So, um, Dolores, uh, I want to first say uh, thank you so much for being such an inspiration. And mine's kind of a follow-up on what you said, uh, because I was uh, one of those kids in the 70s that grew up uh, volunteering and uh, working with, you know, our schools um, and my parents and uh, the Unity Council in Oakland, the, the um, Spanish-speaking Citizens Foundation, La Clinica de la Raza, Centro Legal de la Raza. Um, were all organizations that promoted a lot of your philosophy. And I'm kind of a product of that. I went to college, and now I work for the city of Oakland. And I guess my follow-up question is, how, what do you recommend for us? We're not elected officials, but um, what role do you see people in government? Um, Libby just came out. Libby Shaft, the mayor of Oakland, just came out and said that she'd be willing to go to jail. Like, what should our role be? Are we, you know, should we be on the forefront in that direction, I already gave my supervisor a heads up that if there's raids in Oakland, I might not come to work. <laughs> um, but what do you see our role? Is that the right kind of uh, path to take, or do you see our role as uh, different since no, we're think, working in government? No, I think that you. No, I think both. I think we have to do what they call inside strategy and outside strategy, right? Yeah, if we can get it, become part of government, and we shouldn't think that we're, we shouldn't feel like we're selling out. You know, we can become part of government, that's good too, but then we have to try to influence those around us. And if we're outside, we have to uh, continue organizing. Uh, just uh, the kind of a background that you have is trying to influence other people. Because a lot of people, you know what happens? I think my theory is that everybody has so many issues in their personal lives, especially now. People have to work two jobs sometimes. You've got your family, trying to put the food on the table, pay the rent. And we get overwhelmed with our own personal issues. But the great thing is that once you learn that if you go out there and help other people, your personal issues just become smaller. They become diminished. And you don't have time to think about them because you're busy out here doing other things, you know? And eventually they'll take care of themselves. But in the meantime that you're, you know, you're out there helping people. And, uh, and I think that's a main thing we can do. The other thing is we should talk to other people. And I know some people, they, they don't listen, right? Uh, the first time we talk to them, sometimes we just talk to each other, you know, because you know, we're on the same wavelength. But we've got to talk to those other people that are confused, you know, or brainwashed or whatever. And, and, and so we have to, you know, talk to them and try to. And I know sometimes it's difficult and they'll reject us. Uh, and it's okay to be rejected, you know. We, we, can all, we can take it, you know. We're adults. But then, you know, because if, if you keep talking to, to the other person, it'll take maybe some, seven times to get that message through. And when, it, when we talk about issues like a woman's right to abortion, gay marriage, I always like to say, especially to the Latino community, remember our indigenous president of Mexico, Benito Juarez. And he had a great saying that said, respecting other people's rights is peace, right? And so that goes for women's right to choose, women's uh, right to marry whomever they want, you know, 
even if it happens to be somebody of the same sex, okay, that's yeah. your human right. So, but I think we have to continue educating people. We have to think of ourselves as missionaries in many respects, and especially making them understand that their vote is important and that they've got to be engaged, okay? Because you can't have a democracy when people don't participate. And if only 50% of the people vote, that means that we are giving uh, the win to the other side, to those the, the, to the haters, okay? They're gonna win because we are too lazy to vote or we're too undecided or you know, apathetic or whatever excuse that we have not to vote. Then we're saying, okay, you, you're giving your vote to the other side to work against us and to work against, against human rights. Mm -hmm. Very good, question right here. Hi, uh, I'm Wartra. Uh, my name is Dave Lister. I'm a ESL teacher at City College here in San Francisco. Question, we, we went to the Cesar Chavez uh, Memorial, uh, grave rather, in Keene City, uh, Kern, Kern County, that earlier this month. It's wonderful, and I suggest everyone to go there if you can. But my questions are two. One, did you or Cesar ever have correspondence or personally meet Dr. Martin Luther King? I understand you met Coretta. That's mm -hmm. one question. Second is uh, the, the, the phrase which you're credited with, si se puede, can you tell us anything about where that might have come from? Well, and I never got to meet Dr. King. Uh, I was supposed to meet, go, I was supposed to do an event with Dr. King in New York City, and the weirdest thing happened. I was getting on the plane, I was, and it wasn't like today we have to go to security and all that. You know, you just got on the plane, and I was already getting on the plane, and someone from our staff came and said, you've got to come back to the headquarters. They need you there. I said, well, what is it? What, what's, what's, what's the emergency? You've got to come back to the headquarters. And I never made it. And you know what? To this day, I cannot remember what the emergency was. Mm -hmm. And I now think it, because, you know, we had, in the Farm Workers Union, we were very open. Anybody could come and join the union. We didn't ask a lot of questions. We found out later that we had a lot of infiltrations yeah, into the organization. And somebody didn't want me to go meet with Dr. King. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did have uh, phone conversations with him because he and Caesar would call and we would all come into our, the office there with Caesar's office and so we could hear Dr. King when he was calling us and talking to Caesar, you know. So we communicated with him through the phone and then a lot of correspondence also, especially when he was in jail, he would write, you know. And then of course, we, when, he, when they did put uh, Dr. King in jail, then we would all get busy on the telephones and start calling our, our people in Washington to say, you know, Dr. King is in jail, well, we've gotta do something about getting him out, you know. So we had that connection with him, but physically, I'm, unfortunately, neither Caesar or myself ever got to meet with him. And uh, this, I say it came from the universe, uh, because I was in a meeting with these professional Latinos, you know, and uh, we were, Caesar was doing a fast, and we were trying to get them to come and to join us, because every night we had a, a rally and we had a mass. And uh, I was asking them to come and join us, and they were kind of afraid. And they said to me, oh, Dolores, uh, you know, over there in California, you can do all of these things, but in Arizona, no se puede, you can't do it. And my response to them was, si se puede in Arizona. And that's the way it was born. So that night when I went back and I reported to our, our rally that we had every night, uh, so I gave him the conversation, and then when I said, si se puede, everybody stood up and started shouting, si se puede, si se puede. <laughs> and when, there was a young man who was now an attorney, and at that point he was just a young volunteer, and he said, I still remember that meeting, he said, because when people did that, I just felt, felt chills going up and down my spine, you know? So I say it came from the universe. And now, as you know, there's a party in Spain called the Podemos Party, and uh, they use si se puede as their, as their slogan. Question right yes, we can. <laughs> 
I'm Juanita Chavez. I'm Dolores' daughter, and I work for the Dolores Huerta Foundation. And I think that my mother made a very good case about uh, kind of the critical situation that we're in in the mm -hmm. Central Valley. Um, but I just want to add to that. Um, the Guardian came out with a uh, five-part series, uh, not this year, but the, mm -hmm. the 2016. And um, Kern County is the uh, deadliest county in the nation mm -hmm. at the hands of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, we also have uh, some of the worst air quality in the nation. And we don't generate that air pollution. That gets sent to us from all the urban areas. So I say, if you can send us your air pollution, you can send us your volunteers. Oh, thank right? you. <laughs> so, you know, some people say, well, I have kids. I, I'm, I'm you know, full-time taking care of my kids. And what my mom always says is, you bring the kids with you. Yeah. And we, we turned out fine. Yeah. Your, your children <laughs> will be better for it. You don't say to your children, do you want to go to the protest? You say, which shirt do you want to wear to the protest? This one or this one? <laughs> right. So they have some choice in it. Right, so I just want to, you know, encourage you again to join our social justice network at joindhf.org. We'll keep you updated and send you calls to action and let you know when we need you to come help. Or, you know, you can join a political campaign of, of anyone that you might happen to want to come join. <laughs> and so I just want to, you know, repeat that. Actually, if I can elaborate on that, uh, uh, the Guardian article. Uh, says that Bakersfield, California, and Kern County, California, uh, we have had more slains by law enforcement per capita than any other city in the United States of America. And I mean, just this year alone, we're only into January, and I think they've already killed a couple of people, you know? Uh, and then most of the people that they've been killing are, are, are people of color, although there are some of the other poor white folk uh, that have also been killed. The other statistic that's really important when you talk about the Central Valley since 1965, we have only had one university built in the Central Valley, University of Merced. In the meantime, we have something like over 20 prisons in the Central Valley, again, starting from, uh, from Bakersfield, California to Sacramento. So you can see uh, what, what, this is, what this looks like. And, uh, uh, you know, this is where our tax dollars are going. They're going for more jails. And, you know, the whole thing, too, when we talk about immigration, when people cross the border... It is not a criminal act because they don't hurt anybody when they cross the border without documents. It's, it's a civil offense. But they have turned it into a felony when people get deported. And, uh, and so they built like three new prisons just for immigrants. So if we wonder why all of a sudden all of this attack on immigrants, you know, starting way back to with about 2005 or so, to build more prisons because prisons are an industry. And we know we have uh, prisons are privatized. And, uh, uh, you know, the more, and in fact, we have a new jail now in Kern County. And the word is that uh, the local sheriff, his name is Donnie Youngblood, a sheriff of Joe Arpaio, a friend of Joe Arpaio, that he wants to fill that prison with immigrants. And we know that the, uh, president, uh, uh, the uh, Homeland Security, they have said that they're going to focus on California. And they're going to step up and bring more ICE agents in here because of our sanctuary city, I mean, sanctuary state that was just voted on here by our legislature. So we're in for some rough, rough times, you know. Uh, but again, how do we change it? By who we elect to the Congress, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, I recognize Juanita just because in the film you talk a lot about yeah, the relationship with your your kids and uh, how hard it was to 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 do the work but also be a mom mm-hmm. and it's just so special to see that your kids still are here with you and well, they're doing the work with you and they're yeah. running for office and yeah in fact uh, Juanita was a teacher in Los Angeles for 14 years and uh quit her job as a teacher to come and work with our foundation at half the salary, okay? So then my uh, youngest daughter, Camila Chavez, uh, who also worked here in San Francisco, uh, she also quit her big, nice-paying job that she had uh, to come and be our executive director of the foundation. So I'm really uh, proud of my kids. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dolores. Thank you so much. And we're so honored to have you here at the Commonwealth Club to share and uh, the film was so amazing. And thank you for making sure that the film was made. Uh, that concludes our program. Um, but Dolores is, uh, and, and Juanita had mentioned that they're here for just a little bit. So um, maybe a couple photos, and then you're thank all free you. to go back to work. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank, thank, thank you, you so much. Yes, thank, thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com.